How y'all doing, church family? I got the wave. Children, you may be dismissed to go learn about uh, Jesus and the the great truths in the Bible with uh, the wonderful Pat. So uh, in the back corner, children, have fun. We just uh, sang uh, Holy Lord, and that's a theme that's going to carry through uh, this morning. Uh, I'm Jake, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm stoked to be teaching from God's Word this morning. But if I'm honest with you, I'm also a bit uncomfortable, especially with this passage today. We're going to be uh, continuing our series in the book of Acts um, called Witnesses, Jesus' Followers Who Are Employed rather empowered by the Holy Spirit and commissioned as witnesses to the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to continue that as we jump into his word this morning. I don't know a whole lot, let me finish, okay, about fishing. I don't know a whole lot about fishing, but when I moved here, to Dallas two and a half years ago, it was learned to me. (laughs) Thanks, Devin. I was given my first fishing pole. I was not raised this way. I had like a kid fishing pole, and we sat on a dock for no reason for a long time. Uh, That was my fishing experience as a child. Uh, But coming here, there was actually some catching involved. And I would go with uh, Paul, and we would go to the... Uh, this Willamina Pond. I don't know, maybe some of you have been to it. We also went with Pastor Matt. And I remember this one time that we were just casting out and I was bringing in uh, trout after trout. I think I got like only three trout. Um, but I'm a noob, so really what it was was it was probably the same trout, seeing the same lure and going, ooh, that's delicious. Um, <laughs> you know, just throwing them back, catching it again. I don't know much about fishing, but I sure enjoy being out there and I remember uh, Paul, he had his, his camera and he was taking a picture of this fish that I just wrangled out of the water, wrangled, uh, and I'm just holding it there. And, and from the perspective of the camera, it looks like this fish is massive. Like, you got one, Jake, well done. And then I bring it in close and it's this puny little trout that is not even noteworthy, not even like delete that picture because this is sad, toss it back in. It's the classic, my fish was this big bit. Have you ever caught yourself describing something to someone and notice some exaggerations? This is just a warming up to where we find ourselves this morning as we dive into the book of Acts. But let's start with the good news first, right? The happy stuff. We're going to be in chapter 4, verse 32. Um, And we're going to be reading from there. Chapter 4, verse 32 in the book of Acts. And this is coming off of text where Luke is describing the church as being filled with the Holy Spirit and acting accordingly. And we're going to see more of that continued. There's two parts to this morning. There is the continued faithfulness to the Holy Spirit and acting out in Him. And then there is an opposed perspective where it wasn't the Holy Spirit's leading, but Satan's. So we're going to look at that this morning. Verse 32 in chapter 4, follow along with me as I read. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The full number of those who believed, it's a really big number at this point, the beginnings, the infancy of the church, and Luke states that these believers were of one heart and one soul, which is incredible, especially given the fact that there's multiple ethnicities, multiple cultures here involved, and they're together and they're growing in this church that's sparked by the obedience of the apostles, over 3,000 new believers together from all over the Roman Empire, united of one heart and one soul. That takes a lot of effort, and we see that also in our culture today. Culture's not getting along. Ethnicity's fighting. These were all united, over 3,000. As the body of Christ, we are one, and we are to interact as one, built on the sound doctrine and the clear teaching of God's word says, uh, we're going to jump to verse 33, we'll come back to 32 in a minute, but verse 33 says this, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. This is truly incredible. Check this out, that the gospel truth that is newly living within the hearts and the minds is being taught to them through the testimonies testimonies of those who walked with Jesus, those who talked with Jesus, those who literally witnessed his resurrection and the power behind that. And all of that is bursting out of them in their day-to-day. And so in response, the church is rejecting what the culture has instilled in them, rejecting the things that have value culturally and materialistically, They're being sold and given away for the sake of the church, for the purposes of the kingdom of God. It's thriving. It's beautiful. And you see here, though, that there is no mention that everyone saw perfectly eye to eye. There was never any disagreements. The text doesn't say that. The church was still full of people as it is today, as it is this morning. And people are all unique and different. Some don't know how to fish. But we all have this one core value, this one core similarity. We are all made in the image of God. And then, when we confess and we believe and we repent and we have faith, there is yet another core similarity. We don't all have to agree on the same things all the time. The bummer of this being that uh, we as individuals within the church often fall into this way of thinking. We all have to just agree. We all need to be of identical mind. Uh, Hughes, a commentator, he writes this, It is so wrong to suppose, as some sadly do, that when believers dwell in unity, they will carry the same Bible, read the same books, promote the same style, educate their children the same way, have the same likes and dislikes, and ultimately, that they will become Christian clones. But, one of the wonders of Christ is that He honors our individuality while bringing us into unity. 
Just look at the passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 where it's talking about one body, the body of Christ, and it's made up of many parts. Just a bunch of eyeballs out here, right? No, no, no. We're all uniquely gifted separately for the benefit and the glory of the body of Christ, for the benefit and glory of God. We're not all arms. We're not all lungs. Marty fulfills his part of the body differently than than Eric does, who serves uniquely separate from how Mary serves. This is the body of Christ, and it's beautiful because the wonder of Christ is that he honors our individuality while still bringing us into unity. I love what uh, Pastor Derek said last week. He said, don't worry or spend too much time processing and thinking about what your Holy Spirit-given gifts are. Don't spend too much time. What's he say instead? What's that? Jump in and serve. Just go out and do it. Don't, don't worry about it. It will come to you. People will make it, it will be revealed to you what you're gifting, what your part of the body of Christ is here in the local church to which we are all called. You are a called people. And we each have a part to play. One of my favorite passages uh, is James 1.22, and a lot of the students here will probably hear this and go, Jake, I heard this a billion times. Next, please. Um, but it says this, James 1.22, it says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. So often we sit before the testimony and the teaching of the word of God and it filters in our ears and it then processes in our minds. And that's awesome and that's a great first step. But I'd be amiss if that was the only progress we get. The only forward movement created from the teaching and the diving into the word, we'd be missing out on the implementation. The transition from mind to heart, from heart to hands and feet. Doers of his word, not merely hearers alone. Like I said, we each have a place, a piece to play in this body of Christ, and specifically in faith church. You're a called people, you're a gifted and unique and beautiful people. And I am encouraged. And I get super stoked when I get to see you guys serving Christ by serving the body. Gosh, I love our church family. This, uh, this community that we are a part of, I love it. Now I can only imagine what it was like in the first church. Recorded here in the book of Acts, witnessing the daily, the weekly outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the faithfully united believers in Christ. The first church that we're reading about, we're studying about here on Sunday mornings, was united. And we don't have enough time to dive into that because it was actually already previously dived into. So if you go three weeks back, if you go to our website, uh, Pastor Derek preached a wicked awesome sermon on the unity and the togetherness of the church from chapter 2 in the book of Acts. So you can go check that out if you missed it or need a refresh. I need refreshes all the time. Uh, so the church is of one heart, one soul united. That's, that's the baseline that we need to have going into this going forward. But here's the meat of where we're headed this morning. The church further in verse 32, I said we'd get back to it. It took a long time, but now we're here. Um, the church is caring. 
And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So unified that these believers, these people of this first church, rejected materialism and embraced giving it all for the needs of others. Not out of demand or a pastor out here preaching to you, give. It was out of pure heart. It was out of their generosity. And it was with great enthusiasm that they were giving. Verse 34 reads, There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of the lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. No one was in need. Can you picture that? There were no poor or needy people among them. No one lacked anything within the community. This way of living touches on what God was asking the Israelites to do with the giving of his law. As they were in the desert, they were awaiting the promised land, they were, they were wandering, and, and uh, we jump back to um, the Old Testament. We go to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 15, verse 4, and it reads that there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. See, God was asking Israel to give everything they had to care for all those within their community because ultimately he was taking care of them even when they didn't see it, which if you read your Old Testament, there's a lot of stories about that. Whether they realized it or not, God was caring for them and so he asked them to care for others beyond themselves They're forgetful constantly. Kind of reminds me of myself. We tend to be forgetful people. God is a giving and caring God. And oftentimes I'm a collecting and protecting taker. But the new church here in Luke's recordings in the book of Acts is in step with this richly. They got this. Not just here, but here. And then it showed in what they were doing and giving. Their heart was in it fully. And because of the gospel being proclaimed and the testimony from the apostles who witnessed it, their joy was in the resurrected Christ, not in their earthly material possessions. Did you hear that? The church loved Jesus more than the things that they owned. This is foreign. It's a a pretty foreign concept to just about every person ever. Except for the upside-down kingdom that Christ is reigning over. We all expected a a political savior, a savior uh, to save us from the earthly, material, physical problems, the woes that we endure. Instead, we got what was so much better. A savior who is passionate, about you who came as a lowly servant and died a sinless man who desperately loves sinners. He rose in great power, making a way for us to be in relationship with him by his great grace. 
the God of the universe, the Savior of your soul. That is the kingdom that we are a part of. That is the king in which we serve. What great power and great grace. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them, they they brought all the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet in the submission of the act, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Often we read a passage like this uh, and throughout the Old uh, New Testament, and we see it as like, well, they sold all of their possessions, they sold everything they had, real estate and everything, and they gave it all to the church. Whereas instead what the text says is, as the need arose. Okay, the pooling of the funds built gradually over time, they covered the needs by all who had given or continued to give to the apostles. It's more of a gradual liquidation of their things rather than an immediate sell-all. And so oftentimes we, we read in the New Testament that, that you know, they, left, they dropped their nets and they followed him, right? Talking about the disciples. Yes, they dropped their nets, but I don't think they just left their nets on the beach for somebody to jack you know, later. But they put away that part of their life. They gave that away, and then they fully engaged with God. These people, this church, this new church, oh, I don't need these things. I just need God. And so I'm going to give him back what he's given me so generously. And we get a great example of that at the end of chapter 4. Introducing a key personality in verse 36 who's going to be integral in the growing church and throughout the book of Acts as we continue our study. Thus, Joseph, verse 36, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles as well. Joseph, a.k.a. Barnabas, this Grecian dispersed Jew, is known by his nickname, son of encouragement. How'd you like that nickname? pretty dope. He lives up to it here in the introduction, as well as throughout the recordings in the book of Acts, as example after example, Barnabas encouraged. He encouraged John Mark, who was an exhausted and just terrified missionary that was under Paul, because Paul was kind of crazy. He also encouraged Paul and so many others within the church. This Barnabas guy we're going to learn about, we're going to uh, see more about him as we continue our study. The important thing is, as the people in the community were giving and caring for others, so Barnabas acted. He gave and he cared. He sold a field. And notes that he didn't sell everything. He didn't sell all of his fields. He sold a field. A little background on him. Uh, Barnabas is a Levite, so he comes from um, a wealthy line of descendants. So naturally, he would have more assets than just a field. But uh, he heard that this community, this, this growing church, maybe even heard of a need within the church that arose, and so he sold one of his assets. He sold his land and set the prophet before the apostles' feet and a willing and generous heart 
a willing and generous heart stands as a witness to the power of Jesus and the grace that he offers. Now all who believed were of one heart and soul, giving their material things, caring for one another, having everything in common. That sounds great. Chapter 5, verse 1. But. Starts out with but. One word. It's a very crucial word. It begins a story about an unfortunate exception to this oneness, this unity, an unfortunate exception that ends severely. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to me. You've not lied to men. You've not lied to your friends, but to God. When Ananias heard these things, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, they wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Light and fluffy, right? This passage involves money. But if you walk out of here today thinking that Acts chapter 5 is just a story about money and how someone didn't give so they got dead, you're missing the point. If you walk out of here that just another money talk that the pastor preaches up from the pulpit, you're missing the point. It's so much deeper than that. And it actually gets at a core issue that's uncomfortable. A place that makes you and I adjust in our seats a little bit. So let's dive in, right? First, uh, we have uh, Ananias. These two characters we're introduced to. Ananias, whose name means God is gracious. And his wife Sapphira, which means beautiful in the uh, Aramaic. Two names which are in great contrast to the meanings of their life and how they lived. These two, this married couple, they were selling some land because they had seen and heard of people in their community, in their church. They were new Christians, and they were bringing the proceeds of their sold possessions to the feet of the apostles, and they were getting recognized for it. Like, uh, for example, a, a guy named Joseph from Greece which is like a super ordinary name um, at the time, was giving, given a way cooler name by the apostles, Barnabas, son of encouragement. So why wouldn't this married couple want to jump on that bandwagon of giving generously, right? They can be recognized. What may have started out as good intentions quickly became an overestimation of themselves mixed with motives and old habits. 
Verse 2 says, And with his wife and her knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he kept back some of the money from the transaction. That's no biggie, right? Wrong. We are naturally deceivers. My fish was this big. Deceit can be addicting. An easy thing to fall into. And that's where we see Ananias here in the text. His heart and his mind were deceived. And he was convinced. What Peter says next, though, is probably the exact opposite of what Ananias expected going into that room. I'm going to get a new name. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to get praised and thanked for this generous gift. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it still not in your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You haven't lied to me, Ananias. You lied to God. Crud! I've been found out. And publicly, in front of all these people, there's a line behind me of people ready to give. Yeah, and I'm called out. In the public view, a public sin justifies a public judgment. Here's an important piece. What we got to understand about this text is that Peter tells Ananias that at any point in this deal, he had 100% full control to be a man of integrity. He could have been honest from the start and given like 7% of what he sold. And they would have said, thank you. He could have given 25%. Well, blessings to you, thank you. Could have stepped really uncomfortably 80%. He had full control of his integrity, but instead Ananias being influenced by Satan, as stated in verse 3, he chooses in his own power to deceive. Listen carefully. Satan influenced, but Ananias chose. Satan did none of the choosing for Ananias. It was out of his will. His pride got in the way. So he lied. And the text says that his heart was filled by Satan to lie to the Holy Spirit, and Satan didn't own Ananias' heart. He certainly tempted and influenced his heart. And we studied and we read a few weeks ago in Acts 2 about being filled with the Holy Spirit. This passage today is an exact opposite example. Satan is fighting to end this new community that God has initiated through his faithful ones. He wants the church to fail. So he filled Ananias' heart with lies. Ananias was Satan's pawn, but God is sovereign. God's in control. Jesus is king on the throne. And the Spirit moved in Peter, and severe judgment was the end of Ananias. Let's sit in that a minute. In uh, preparation for this morning's passage, um, 
I read the passage, you know, over and over and, and kind of looked at it from different angles and, and just chewed on it for a bit. But it came to a point where I had to just set it down and walk away. Because the passage confronted something within me. It quickly got uncomfortable. And I sat there for a while, just me and God. And I examined my heart. I repented of my wrongs. The areas in my life where I chose to deceive. The areas in my life where I choose to deceive. Choose to live hypocritically. I believe this passage is a call to confront ourselves. So church family... Let's sit in the uncomfortable. You ready? I want you to take this time and be silent before the Lord, and I want you to examine your heart. Because the text is here, the text has been read. What are you going to do with it? Are we just going to be hearers of the word or doers? I didn't have to wait very long for the Spirit to give me a handful of things to repent of. So I want us all heads bowed, eyes closed. I want us just to take this silent time to ask the Spirit, because He's your helper, what's really going on? What areas do I need to repent of? This is just between you and God. It involves no one else. Lord, we repent of these things. We live out in faith for your purposes. I'm reminded of what it says in Matthew of where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where's our hearts, Lord? What are we treasuring? May this not just be a momentary time where we come before you in church because the pastor said so. But in our day-to-day, when we need to repent, when things come up where we've created wrongs, where we've lied, we've been full of deceit, may we engage in that beyond these walls in our relationship with you. You want to hear from us. You love us more than anything. Where's our treasures? Jesus, we love you. Amen. But wait, there's more. It gets gooder. Okay, Ananias is dead, and his enabling wife shows up late to the party looking for her hubby. How's that turn out? So, verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, 
for so much. She continues this deceit that her husband gave into, that her husband decided upon, the hypocrisy that they were living in. And I can just imagine and sense Peter's baffled frustration in verse 9 as he says to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Ah. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They're going to carry you out too. Immediately she fell down at his feet. She breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. This sounds crazy, right? This is an intense story. It's a bit uncomfortable. But this happened. There's other examples within Scripture where God's severe judgment was necessary. We see in Leviticus and also in Joshua of some examples where God had to use severe judgment in a critical time and for here at the inception of a great and key movement, the church. God acted severely to express a standard for us as people. And there's no way that God is allowing the inception, the beginnings of the church to begin with deceit and hypocrisy. He had to nip that in the bud right away. Oftentimes we hear, yeah, I don't go to church. Uh, this is kind of full of a bunch of hypocrites. Why would I go hang out there? They live one way and then speak another all holy in church and such. That's our secular culture talking. Hypocrisy is critic numero uno today still. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like today if Ananias and Sapphira's account here wasn't even in the Bible and they just got away with it? Away with lying when the church was brand new. See, deceit and hypocrisy kill movements. Deceit and hypocrisy suffocate healthy churches. Lying is a big deal. And I think, culturally, we don't believe that. And so we have a twisted view of God's holiness. His set apart. His perfection. It's just a white lie. Lying is a big deal. It's simulated holiness. It's fake Christianity. It's religious fraud. And sin rarely, if ever, comes in single packages. Sin gives birth to more sin. What started as a lie turned into deceit, which then gave birth to an offense against God. People like Ananias and Sapphira want to be seen, they want to be noticed as greater than they actually live up to. They want to be seen on Sunday mornings as a great follower of Christ when in fact Monday through Saturday looks so starkly different. That's uncomfortable. People like Ananias and Sapphira walk into church Sunday mornings with a smile on their face and the greeter at the door says, Good morning, how are you doing? And they say, So blessed. But just moments, minutes before, they were having a screaming match in the car on the way here to church, and the kids were poking each other, and you and your wife didn't resolve 
the issue that you had, the conflict that you had the night before, and so there's cold shoulders brought into this. Or maybe it was just that you had a truly awful week at work, and it's wearing on you, and you're just done. So blessed. Hypocrisy and deceit. Having pride in how I appear to others. Caring about how I'll be perceived. When I should reply honestly to the cheerful greeting. How are you doing this morning? Not great. I'm glad to be here. Are we actively choosing honesty and integrity? Or oftentimes what comes so naturally, deceit and hypocrisy. It's just easier to lie sometimes. And as we finish uh, together here this morning, there's two things that I want us to walk away with. First is live in fear of the Lord. The second is repent and have faith. These are reminders that I need daily. We're left with verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Obviously, there was great fear, right? The dude walked up, he was giving some money, and then he's not anymore. And then his wife trickles in, late to the party, and then she's not anymore. Makes you kind of want to think and go back, well, I was going to give this much, but I, I need to go get some more, you know. Obviously, great fear came upon the whole church. Standing around ready to give their money, gifts, and their offerings, and they see this happen. There's a bit of fear involved. But what fear are we being called to, church? Live in fear of the Lord. Don't be scared. Don't be terrified. Live in great reverence and respect because He is all-powerful. He is the great power and the great grace that we get. So live in great reverence and respect for He's sovereign and He alone is holy. Yeah, He just severely uh, Ananias and Sapphira and He calls us to a standard of living. Fear the Lord. Revere His holiness. Repent of your deceit and hypocrisy that can entangle you so greatly. Because sin breeds more sin. But the hope is in this. God wants you. He wants all of you. And all to himself. Yeah, money and lust and lying and whatever it may be for you, whatever gets in the way from God having you fully, you get distracted. You fall off course. We all do. Repent and have faith. Just go before Him. Be real with Him. That's all He's asking. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are cherished by the Creator, the Savior, and the Indweller. Your truthful honesty and integrity matter. You honor God in doing so. So let these convictions from the Spirit lead us toward being truthful even when life gets hard. Father,
Let that be our prayer. Beyond these walls, we want to be people of integrity. But that's the hard choice to make. There are so many easier options. But we want to be faithful to you. Are we here to please people or to please God? God, help us to reconcile that in our hearts. We thank you for your sacrifice in giving your Son to die for us, defeating sin and death and your resurrection and the power that's in that with the Spirit who lives in us as we believe. What gospel beauty. Mm. Let us live according to these great truths. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers alone. We love you, Jesus. Amen.